And if by chance you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And especially if you're new with us, I really want to encourage you to open up that Bible and follow along with us in John 13 as we study this morning. And uh, if you need a shortcut in that pew Bible, you'll find our passage on page 956. While you're turning there, I want to pray for us. Uh, Father, you've heard our praises this morning. We have proclaimed your mercy and your love, your grace and your forgiveness. And uh, we sing those things, one, to praise you for your exquisite character, but also to remind us of all that we need from you and all that we have from you. And so, Lord, uh, we come in this morning not pounding our chests, confident in ourselves, uh, or necessarily feeling strong, but we are in great need. Lord, soften our hearts to receive all that you have for us. And we know we don't have to beg you or plead with you to meet us in our need, but Lord, we need only to open our hands. Thank you for being a God who is giving and gracious and abundant and compassionate, who knows our need before we do, who has put in place the rescue before we've asked for it. Father, thank you for being such a gracious heavenly Father, great, transcendent, big beyond all things, and yet knowing us by name, counting every tear, hearing every groan, present in our weakness. Father, we praise you. And so lift us today. God, let your word capture our hearts. Holy Spirit, lead us into your truth today. Glorify your name in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate our 75th anniversary. I'm very excited about that. And so what we're doing in these Sunday mornings leading up to that is we're in a sermon series going through the eight commitments that we make to each other as part of our membership covenant, eight commitments that we make uh, to the Lord and to one another. Uh, and just by way of reminder, this is not a members-only sermon series. This is especially important for you if you're new to our church, if you're not a member of our church, you may not be familiar with our membership covenant. And so it's important for you to know what these commitments are so that you know the kind of church you're worshiping in and you can know uh, the kind of church you want to join by being a part of the membership class that starts this morning in the library and also uh, by contributing to the overall fabric and beauty of our church. And so we've covered our first two commitments, a commitment to the centrality of the Bible, to our lives and our worship. Uh, we also covered our commitment to gathering together for worship. And uh, this morning we're going to spend some time considering our third commitment. And uh, that third commitment uh, reads this way. It says this, we will work together by the Holy Spirit's power to promote a faithful gospel ministry in this church sustaining its doctrines, ordinances, leadership, and mission. We will cheerfully give of our talents, spiritual gifts, and finances to the work of this church, the relief of the poor among us, and the spread of the gospel on the south shore and to the ends of the earth. It's a big paragraph. There's a lot going on in those two sentences. There are verbs like promote and sustain and give, and I want us to focus on the word give in that second sentence. We will cheerfully give 
of our talents, spiritual gifts, and finances. What I find being described in that sentence, if we were to sum that up in one word, uh, is servanthood. This is the life of a servant of Christ. The servant of Christ who is like Christ will assess all that they have and use it for the sake of others. Servanthood is the focus of commitment number three. And so John 13 teaches us about servanthood. It takes us to the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And on this night, we find some of the last words of Jesus. How important do you think the last words of Jesus are? Now, to be sure, all of Jesus' words are of eternal importance. I'm not trying to say some are more important than others. But on this particular night, the night before he hangs on the cross, he speaks with special emphasis to clarify what it meant to be his follower. In his final hours, the words of Jesus are poignant and weighty and significant. And in this final meal with his disciples, Jesus demonstrated servanthood, and he commanded the same from his followers. So if a Christian is going to look like Jesus, that Christian must be a servant. And if a church is going to follow Jesus, then that church must be full of servants. Christ commanded this, and then he went to the cross. Now, what if someone were observing your life, and they didn't know what Jesus talked about in John 13 when it comes to service? What would that observer conclude the character of Jesus to be like from looking at your life? Or what might they conclude the character of Jesus to be like by looking at our church and the relationships in our church? How many characteristics would that observer name before they got to the characteristic servant? Some Christians might look at the state of the world today and conclude that now is not the time for servanthood. We think of servanthood as something feeble and weak, uh, something passive. Now's not the time to serve, but now's the time to fight. Now's the time to defend, and now's the time to battle culture, and now's the time to win our country and to rescue our schools. But on the night before Jesus' death, he didn't talk about anything like that stuff. He talked about servanthood. And it's not that those things aren't important or worthy of conversation, but these aren't the last words of Jesus. Servanthood is among the last words of Jesus. He commands us to serve. In the words of South Shore Baptist Church, Jesus commanded us to give of our talents, spiritual gifts, and finances to the work of this church, the relief of the poor among us, and the spread of the gospel on the South Shore and to the ends of the earth. And so my goal today is to persuade you to obey Jesus by joyfully serving others in the same way Jesus has served you. We must be a church of servants if we are to be the church of Jesus Christ. So in John 13, verses 1 through 17, we find two reasons that we should live our lives in service of others. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Again, remember, here we are the night before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, the last meal of Jesus with his disciples, and here's how John describes it. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This passage splits really nicely into two different sections. Verses 1 through 11 are the first section. That's where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The second section, verses 12 through 17, and it continues on past verse 17 also, but for our study this morning, we're going to stop in verse 17. But that second section is where Jesus gave the command to serve. So what we have in these two sections, we have action followed by instruction. We have cleansing followed by command. And these two sections give us the two reasons why we must live in service to others. The first reason is this. We serve because it's how we were saved. The reason we commit our lives to serve others is because this is precisely how you and I were saved. Now, this is a much-loved story in the New Testament and a much-loved scene in the life of Christ, and so it's probably not new to you. And if that's the case, then you might be aware that foot washing was a common form of hygiene in the days of Jesus. Roads were just dirt, and people would have worn sandals made out of leather and rope. Combine the heat and the sweat and the dirt and the filth, and then you can imagine what the result was, just really grody feet. When you came in to eat, you didn't sit at a table in chairs, but rather you sat on, uh, uh, sat on the floor, you reclined, uh, and so your feet were close to other people's noses and their food. And so it was a, not an uncommon practice that when you would enter a home, especially uh, where you were being hosted as a guest, that someone would wash your feet as part of the regular hygiene and also as a way of honoring the person who you were hosting in your home. 
who washed the feet was a, a carefully choreographed uh, system of honor. Someone greater never washed the feet of someone lesser than them. Uh, in a patriarchal society, the wife might wash the husband's feet. The children might wash the parents' feet. The slaves might wash the master's feet. But a higher up would never wash the feet of someone lower down. Uh, in, in fact, one New Testament scholar, uh, multiple scholars have said that this was pretty much slave work almost exclusively. Uh, and there was a certain group of rabbis who used to teach that washing feet was such a lowly task that no Jewish person should ever do it, even if they were a slave. Uh, feet have always been considered filthy and undignified. You may have seen scenes from protests in the not-too-distant past where angry mobs would pound statues with their shoes or with their sandals because to do that is a sign of great dishonor and disrespect to the person envisaged there. Or you might remember the scene several years back where an Iraqi journalist threw his shoe at then-President George W. Bush. Uh, it's we just see a shoe flying, but in that culture, it is tremendously disrespectful. So feet have always had sort of this deeper sense, cultural speaking, culturally speaking, of disgust and grossness. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it appeared that maybe some mistake had happened. Someone should have been washing Jesus' feet on this night, but they didn't. Jesus was the one washing their feet. Jesus was the guest of honor. He should have been treated to that privilege. And Jesus is kind of a big deal in Jerusalem at this point in time. You'll remember just a few days before this, he entered Jerusalem with incredible fanfare, great popularity, people singing his praises, Hosanna to the son of David. And so Jesus is worthy of honor, worthy of this privilege, uh, but no one washed his feet. His disciples didn't even consider Jesus' own dignity and comfort at the mill. Instead, they bicker about their own roles in the coming kingdom. And while they are bickering and eating and doing whatever, Jesus got up, he disrobed, he assumed the role of a slave, and he began to wash their feet. Now, here's what you and I know. This scene is not really about hygiene. This is a parable in action. By washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is interpreting his sacrificial death. You remember what Jesus says here in verse 7 in his response to Peter. He said, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterwards you will understand. Well, after what? Well, after the cross, you will understand. The foot washing is an interpretation of the cross. It shows the means by which we are saved through Christ's humiliation. And then it speaks to why we are saved as well. But first and foremost, it speaks to us about the how of our salvation. We're saved through Christ's exquisite, humble service. Now, I want you to think with me about the people whose feet were washed by Jesus on that night. What were they like? Well, John tells us about two of the people in the room explicitly. First, he tells us about Judas Iscariot. And in verse 2, we're told that not only that Judas is going to betray Jesus, but Jesus knew this. 
Jesus was aware of Judas's intentions, the plan that was going to unfold. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. John also told us about Peter. Any chance John gets to jab Peter in his gospel, he does, and I love it. It's divinely petty. When Jesus got to Peter, Peter objected not once but twice. Wait, you're going to wash my feet? I'll never let you wash my feet. And then Jesus responded to Peter. He said, if if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then Peter's response to Jesus is his typical over-the-top language. Lord, not only my feet, but also wash my heads or my hands and my head. I, I picture Peter clutching his pearls while he says this very big over-the-top statement. So does Peter's response in verse 9, does it show any greater understanding of the sort of cleansing Jesus is going to do? I don't think it does. I think it still shows us, again, a man who struggles to relinquish control to Jesus. He struggles to let Jesus be Jesus. Even in his so-called surrender to being washed head to toe, he's still giving orders to the Master. If he would just keep his mouth closed and let Jesus be Jesus, things would go the way they should go for Peter. But he doesn't. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Jesus washed the feet of his denier. That's not all, though. He also washed the feet of Thomas the doubter. And he washed the feet of Nathaniel the skeptic. And he washed the feet of Matthew the tax collector. And he washed the feet of the brothers James and John, who at this very meal are arguing about who gets to sit in the seats of honor in Christ's kingdom. It's just a few hours after this scene that one pair of clean feet would walk to Jesus to betray him, and 11 pairs of clean feet would run away from Jesus, abandoning him in the garden. He washed and dried every foot because he wanted those non-believing men to remember his love that triumphed over their most intense failures. Think about how Jesus served them. John tells us in verse 4 that Jesus got up from supper. It seems he didn't wash their feet before the meal as would have been custom, but rather it was in the middle or at the end of the meal that Jesus rises to wash their feet. He does it pointedly then on purpose in order to clarify his point. He removed his clothes, the clothes of a dinner guest, and he dressed himself as a slave. And one by one, he washed 12 pairs of feet. How long does it take to wash a foot? Or 24 feet. I don't think this was some ceremonial act where he just sort of sprinkles a tiny bit of water and dabs with a towel before moving on. I think when John says Jesus washed their feet, he washed their feet. They were dirty and then they were clean. They weren't just sprinkled, they were cleaned all the way. And how long does that take? How long does it take to thoroughly wash a foot? Do you have to refill the basin of water in between each set of feet? Uh, How quiet was it in the room? I've got to think that 
such an action would have brought all conversation to a screeching halt. Maybe no other talking while this is going on until Jesus got to Peter and he filled the silence with his ignorance. How long did it take? What do you, what do you think? Maybe 20 minutes start to finish from undressing to washing and drying to dressing again. 20 minutes our Lord was dressed as a slave and he held 24 filthy feet and he dried 24 clean feet. But his own feet were not washed. He took their stains on himself so that they could be clean. And this is a mere foretaste of his humiliation to come. Because he would soon be dressed in a mock robe with a crown of thorns. And then he would be disrobed as a convicted criminal. And covered in the foul cursing and the spit of spectators to his suffering. In the upper room, he took the stains of dirty feet, but on the cross, he took the stains of sinful souls. Think about Jesus' demeanor when he washed their feet. He took the initiative. He didn't move when someone asked. He he didn't wash some, but not all. He got up. He laid aside his clothing. He took the towel. He tied it around himself. He poured the water in the basin. He washed the feet. He dried the feet. Jesus gets all the verbs in this scene. He moves towards broken, fearful, sinful, non-believing people because he loves them. And he doesn't love them because he sees potential. And he doesn't love them because they're trying their best. He loves them in every bit of their brokenness. They didn't find him in the upper room. He found them in all of their sin, in all the things that would make us not love them or make us unlovely. He moved towards them. He moved towards them in their unbelief, and he loves them. And he loves you. Judas was a betrayer. Peter was a denier. What are you? You're loved. That's what you are. He loves the arrogant, the evil, the outcasts, the embarrassments, the fearful, and the broken. Those who have given up, those who have said no, these are his loved ones. And at the cross, he took on himself all the stains of our sin and gave us his holy purity. The Apostle Paul described Jesus' love in this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it begs the question, has he cleansed you? Has he washed you? He told Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. When we think about the love of Jesus, it's right that we would think about how lavish it is, how open-handed, how extravagant the love of Jesus is. But we can't miss this line in the story. Jesus' love is not without boundaries. He draws a line for Peter. 
Look, if I don't wash you, you've got no part with me, Peter. You, you can't wash yourself and expect to be clean. You, you can't try and clean yourself up on your own or by any other means. I'm the one. And what he says to Peter, he says for our benefit. Because here's the error we make so often. We think, if, if I clean myself, if I do my best, then I'll be clean and God will be happy with me. But you have to hear the words of Jesus this morning. If he doesn't clean you, you're not clean. If he doesn't forgive you, you're not forgiven. If he doesn't save you, you're not saved. If he's not your Lord, you're not his child. So many times when it comes to allowing the Lord to clean us, we're, we're like a toddler who's just finished a huge bowl of spaghetti. And you've seen this before, I'm guessing. The toddler, head to toe in spaghetti by the time it's all done. And it's time for cleaning up. And like any toddler is going to do, maybe you come to the child with a warm rag to clean them up. And what does she say? I do it. That's, they're required by law to say that. I do it. And so you might let her try to do it. And uh, she'll do a little bit, but it's, it's not enough, not by any stretch. And, and then you do it, right? And you put the rag on her face, and, and what happens? It's a fight, just back and forth, and all of this. And bah. Man, that's, that's us with Jesus. We say, I'll do it. He's like, no, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. I want to do it. I died to do it. Has he cleaned you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? There's no one else that can do what he's done for us. No one else. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. The only one whose death is for our salvation. And so he invites you today in all of your brokenness and all of your fear and all of your sin and all of your whatever, he invites you to come and to be cleaned. Uh, the writer of John's gospel, John. He wrote another letter later in the New Testament. It also bears his name. And there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, he wrote these words, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. And isn't that good news? Every sin forgiven by Jesus. Today, you need to turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and turn to Jesus in faith, believing that his death and resurrection are for you. When your faith is in Jesus, you're truly, completely forgiven forever. And when you've experienced the salvation that comes through Christ's servanthood, then you'll want to live in the same way. The reason we live lives of service to those around us is because this is how we ourselves were saved, by Christ who served us through his death and resurrection. It makes no sense that we would be saved by his humility, but then we would live in arrogance. Or that we would be saved by his sacrifice, but that we would live for our accumulation we are a church of servants because our Savior is the greatest servant of all. So we serve because it's how we were saved. And the second reason we serve in this story, we serve because it's why we were saved. So Jesus finished washing their feet. He dressed, and then he began to teach. And I want you to listen to the words of Jesus starting in verse 12. Look at your Bible with me. 
When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant's not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you do them. It's a beatitude. Only two beatitudes in the entire Gospel of John, and this is one of them. You're blessed if you serve, if you do the things Jesus has told us to do. Jesus commands his disciples to wash one another's feet. Again, you know this is not about hygiene. It's uh, the point of what Jesus has commanded here is that they should always be ready to perform the lowliest service for one another. No act of service should be beneath them when it comes to serving others in the faith and even those outside the faith. And so the question we might ask is, as we think about Jesus' command is, what is required for us to serve like Jesus? What does it look like for me to serve like Jesus and obey this command? Well, to serve like Christ is going to require humility. It's a service in sacrifice to others. It, it means taking up the lesser role for someone else's benefit. Just as uh, Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2 as letting go of all of his divine privilege, taking on flesh, going all the way to the horror of the cross in order for you and I to be saved. You and I are to walk that same downward path, putting others' needs before our own. That's going to require real humility on our part. Now, if Jesus had told us to wash his feet, we'd be okay with that sort of humility. But he told us to wash each other's feet. And that's a different kind of humility. It's one thing for Jesus to be above us. It's something else for a fellow sinner to be put above us. To serve like Christ requires humility. To serve like Christ requires sacrifice. Now, in, in recent decades... We've categorized people in the church according to their spiritual gifts, and we've encouraged people to serve according to their spiritual gifts. Now, look, for sure there's wisdom in that, uh, because we know from the New Testament that not everyone has every spiritual gift, not everyone has the same spiritual gift, so it's, it's good to consider how has God gifted me uniquely, and how can I use those gifts and passions in the church for the sake of the gospel? It's good to think about. However, sometimes... We will only serve in ways that serve our interests, our egos, and our schedules. And service out of convenience requires no sacrifice. If service is only voicing thoughts and prayers for the afflicted, then you've sacrificed nothing. If service never touches your wallet, then you're hedging your sacrifice. To serve like Christ requires real sacrifice. To serve like Christ requires love. It's a Jesus type of love for the lovely and unlovely alike. But listen, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you'll find that all people are lovely enough to serve. What about my enemy? Jesus told you what to do with your enemy. What about my persecutor? Jesus told you how to pray for your persecutor. He's commanded us to love 
always in all people. It's only love that turns an enemy into a brother. That's what happened to you if Jesus is your brother. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, we just sang that line. It's love that changes enemies into brothers. I've seen Christ-like love on display in our church just this week. One small example. We have a, a, a member of our church who's coming home from the hospital and is in need of some meals. And so I, I've watched an email thread from our deacons. Our deacons are men and women in our church who are lead servants. And they have rallied to this member's side to make sure that our church member has meals to eat while recovery is ongoing. Love does that. Love cooks the meal. Love visits the hospital. Love writes the card. Love makes the phone call. It shares the grief. It listens to the pain. It pays the rent. It pays the oil truck. It pays the plumber. It buys the clothes. It fills the refrigerator. Love shows up unannounced with ice cream and coffee. That's what love does. John would go on to write in that other letter by his name, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And there he would describe what love looks like. And he says it this way, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So brothers and sisters, we are saved by Jesus for this purpose. We are saved to serve. At our salvation, we aren't handed a throne so we can rule people. And we aren't given a sword so that we can have power over people. And we aren't given sovereignty so that we can control people. We are given a cross so we can serve people. Our servant Savior turns us into saved servants. That's why we're saved. In this incredible scene in John chapter 13... We're given two reasons to live our lives in service to others. First, we serve because that's how we were saved, through Christ's incredible service and sacrifice at the cross. And second, we serve because that's why we were saved. He has rescued us for this purpose. And so I I come to the end of this passage with two different people in mind. The first is the person who needs to serve. I want you to be persuaded by Jesus who said in verse 15, you should do just as I have done for you. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Do you want to experience God's favor and blessing? Then serve with the heart of Christ. Serve in the church and outside the church. Serve in ways planned and spontaneous. Serve those you love and those that are a challenge to love. Serve just as Jesus served you. There's a second person I have in mind, and that's the person who needs to be served. It's possible that that's you today. So, Maybe you have a need that the church can meet. 
happens from time to time. We, we, we go through some challenges, and this is why God has given you your brothers and sisters in this church, so that we can come alongside you and help you in any way that you need help. And if you find you have an extraordinary need right now, I know it's not easy to ask. I, look, I understand that there's a sense of shame or even pride that might keep us from making the call. Listen to me. Make the call. Let your faith family love you and serve you in this way. And so if you want to, you could talk to me today about your need, and I'm going to put you in touch with our deacons, or you could call our church office, and we'll discreetly put you in touch with them, and uh, there the resources of our faith family can come to your aid. But perhaps it's not the church's uh, help that you're in need of, but it's Jesus himself. And it seems to me that some of us might read this story and realize that we need Jesus to clean us from our sin again, or we need Jesus to bind up our wounds. We need the reminder that he hasn't forgotten us, that he sits with us in our brokenness, and he loves us perfectly all the way to the end. His love found me yesterday. I received a phone call yesterday morning from a dear Christian friend who lives out of state, a friend that I hadn't spoken with in about a year. It was a tremendous surprise. I was so happy to, to hear his voice on my phone. And he asked how I was doing. How's the family? How's the church? And I answered as you're supposed to answer in those conversations. Fine. Great. Everything's good. And there, things are fine and things are great. And there are good things to talk about. But as I was talking to this brother and giving him the easy answers... I thought to myself, well, maybe it's no accident that he called on this day. Maybe this is the kindness of God. And so I told my friend, hey, um, I've been going through some stuff recently, and here's how you can pray for me. And he listened, and then he prayed for me. But I knew it was Jesus the whole time. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. Let's pray. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, for drawing near to us. We praise you because though we are sinful and hurting and broken and weak and fragile and unlovely by every possible metric. Oh, you have seen in us your creation, bearers of your image, people of infinite worth and value, so much so that you would lay down your life for us. So we praise you. We thank you. We're grateful that you have loved us in this way. I pray this morning for the friend in here that has not yet been cleaned by you, so to speak, that today they would put their faith in you and find the healing, the forgiveness, the eternal life that you've held for them all this time. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who need encouragement to follow you in service. 
Give them confidence in the gifts you have given them and in the opportunities you put before them that in humility and sacrifice and love, they would serve in the same way you have served them. And I lift to you, my brothers and sisters who came in here limping today, who need you once again to bind up their wounds and to love them. Father, may their souls rest in you and leave this room today really strengthened, really renewed, refreshed by you. Father, make us a people who serve, a church of servants, that your love would be seen and known and your, your gospel would be heard and believed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.